I'm Cheryl Prashker, and this is FolkPod, the show for everyone who loves folk music. Here, I talk to the people who draw this community together and bring it to life. Before we get started, a little bit of business. FolkPod is a labor of love, and a whole lot of work goes into every episode. I've heard from a lot of you how much you're enjoying it. So we've put a virtual tip jar up on our website, thefolkpod.com. Please consider leaving us a tip to help pay for the real costs that go into creating this series. There are other ways that you can show your appreciation, too. Like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platforms. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at TheFolkPod. And leave us great reviews to help other fans find us. Now, on to this week's guest, Sunny Oaks. Sunny is a folk DJ, a concert promoter, a retired school teacher, ambulance driver, consummate volunteer, and every touring folk musician's favorite hostess. She's also the older sister of the late Phil Oaks. Welcome, Sunny. Wow, after all of that, Cheryl, <laughs> my head's swelling. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's so much more I could say, I know, but I didn't want you to blush. But I'm just going to pretend this is like us talking on the phone, okay. like we do. Or sometimes I get to visit you in person, which I haven't done for like a whole year or more, which I'm missing. I'm hoping this fall, all kidding aside. That would be wonderful. Am I going to have to make a reservation? Are the musicians starting to roll through yet or not yet? Well, I have one coming this month, but that's about it for now. Oh, that's good, though. You'll get a visitor. That's really cool. I really appreciate you sitting down and chatting with us here on FolkPod. I'm very excited to talk to you, about you, let people know a little bit about what you've been doing over the last few years and where it all started. I've known Sunny for about 20 years. Uh, I think we first met at a Philadelphia Spring Thing event. But the first time we ever actually interacted was at the Philadelphia Folk Festival where you were stage managing. This is how I first met you. So I was coming up to the smaller stage on the side. I think it was the uh, craft stage in the afternoon. And Sonia from Disappear Fear, I had just met her, I think the night before, at the hotel party, and and she asked me to come up and play a little percussion for her. So I went up to the side of the stage, and you just stood there and said, who are you? And I said, well, I'm really excited because Sonia asked me to come up and play some percussion with her. And you looked at your chart, you asked me my name, and you said, well, your name's not on this, so you are not getting on this stage. And I was like, what? But Sonia asked me to come and play. Yeah, but you're not on my list, and you are not getting on this stage. And that's how we met. And the rest is history. What a great weekend. <laughs> it was like, I had never experienced anything like that. It was quite something. Well, I always ran a tight ship. Yeah, which is amazing. Thank God. So you've been stage managing for a very, very long time. Take me back to the beginning. Tell us where you grew up. And did you have music in school? Did you do any music yourself? Did you play any instruments? Did you sing? Well, let's begin at the beginning. I went to elementary school in Far Rockaway, New York, and then when I was in high school, we moved up near Buffalo to a place called Perrysburg, where I attended Kowanda High School. And I was in the chorus in high school. I did love to sing, even though I sang a little bit off-key, <laughs> but I enjoyed it. And also in high school, I took piano lessons from a guy who taught pop music, so I learned chords in the left hand, and I could read the right hand, you know, the music, I could read the notes. Oh, how long did you play piano for? Oh, not very long. I would never play in front of anybody. I played for my own enjoyment, and I did enjoy it, although the neighbors probably hated me because <laughs> I would get <laughs> fixed on a song. For example, Johnny Ray's song, The Little White Cloud That Cried. 
I used to play that over and over and over. <laughs> so between that and my brother Phil at one point wanting to learn drums. I didn't know that. The neighbor downstairs said when she heard that Phil was going to learn the drums, she said, over my dead body. <laughs> Did he ever take drums? Nope. She stopped it cold in its tracks. Oh, no. So you have two brothers. Yes. Michael and Phil. Did Michael have any musical, you know? He played horribly. He took saxophone lessons and he was terrible. And Phil took clarinet lessons. He was overly great. But he was annoying as hell because he would play the same measure over and over and over until he got it absolutely perfectly exactly the way he wanted it. It was so nerve-wracking. And we had a dog, and the dog used to sit at his feet and howl. And Phil would hit a high note, the dog would howl a high note. It was almost like like she was singing along with the clarinet. It was god-awful. Well, I'll just preface this by saying, for those who don't know who Phil Oaks was, he was an American singer-songwriter, mostly known for his political songs, most of which are still relevant today and still being sung today. And we'll talk a little bit about those that are performing his music. But you're the eldest? I'm the eldest, yes. And the other musical influence in my life was when I was in grade school, I'd say about seventh, eighth grade. We lived at that time, that was still in Far Rockaway, and there was a radio show in New York on WNEW called Make Believe Ballroom, and it was a show of pop music, and the pop music in those days were people like Doris Day and Perry Como and Frank Sinatra, and they would also do the big bands like hmm. Glenn Miller right. and Tommy Dorsey, and my all-time favorite was Frankie Lane. No kidding. Frankie Lane had the most distinct voice, and his repertoire, his songs, as I look back now, were really very much in the folk vein, even though they weren't technically folk songs. Right. But songs like Rawhide, Cry of the Wild Goose, Ghost Riders in the Sky. Oh, yeah. I love that one. Who doesn't love that one? The first record I ever bought was a 78 of Frankie Lane singing Jezebel. So you remember that. That's kind of cool. I remember it, yeah. It's funny because recently you put together a show for your birthday that was aired on Folk Music Notebook, where we air Folk Pod, and you had free reign of the two hours and you played all your favorite songs and you started off with some amazing music that I just wasn't expecting. Well, I started off with Frankie Lane. Yep. Singing Jezebel. Yep. And then I played Charlie Brown by the Coasters. Yep. And Del Vikings, Come Go With Me. Who knew you were, a, you were a rock and roller at heart? Well, that's what it was in those days. Yeah, yeah. Through high school, it was always very, well, to me now, dull pop music. Right. But then uh, after high school, all of a sudden, in came Elvis Presley, who was also somebody I played on this show. Yep. And he, and oddly enough, there was a group called the Crew Cuts. <laughs> <laughs> that seems ironic now. And they were the first rock and rollers on the radio. They sang Shaboom, right. Crazy About Your Baby. Oh, yeah. This was the summer of 1954, I believe, when all of this stuff started to appear. And it just changed the whole face of music. It was a whole new world. It was the beginning of rock and roll. So then you ended up in Far Rockaway. I know that. <laughs> I've been everywhere after I finished high school. I ended up at uh, Ohio State University for one year, ran away and got married like an idiot five days before my 19th birthday. 
needless to say, that didn't work. There you go. <laughs> then I went to Texas for that short-lived marriage. Then I moved to Ohio. Texas? Texas. Wait, wait, back it up. You were in Texas? That's where my daughter was born. I actually didn't realize that's where she was born. And that's where Phil was born, and that's where Michael was born. So I do have a Texas connection. I didn't know that. Yeah, so then I moved up to Ohio. I moved back in with my parents. Then I met an old classmate from Far Rockaway, married him, moved back to Far Rockaway, and stayed there during the entire education of my kids. And you became a teacher. I became a teacher, accidentally. So how did you decide to go back to school and become a teacher, since we all know how you feel about little kids? Who said little kids? I mean, I taught you in your high school. <laughs> but anyhow, how that all happened was bizarre. I had... <laughs> A kid or two. <laughs> or two or three. And a friend of mine said she was going to go back to college because she wanted to become a teacher. So I decided, hmm, night school, get out of the house mm -hmm. two nights a week, away from the kids, <laughs> away from reality, be around adults. What a concept. So I decided to take courses just for the fun of it. Oh, okay. And what happened was, all of a sudden, I ended up going for seven and a half years at night. I didn't know that. Okay. Because I started to realize, my gosh, I could actually get a degree. Wow. What a concept. <laughs> what a concept. I had no ambition in terms of a career. I just liked going to school. And I became a sociology major because my first sociology professor was so interesting, and so was the subject matter that I stuck with it, and that became my major. Okay. So I graduated college quite by accident. That's pretty awesome, I think. The next step is, this is bizarre. I, as I said, I was living in Far Rockaway. It was the 60s, and everybody kept saying to me, oh, you're Phil's sister, you must play the guitar, right? And this went on and on and on, and finally I said, I don't play the guitar, but why not? So a couple of my neighbors and I got together. We all got guitars. We all bought Giannini's, which is a Brazilian guitar, and we practiced together. And I would sit on the front porch for hours and hours and hours practicing. But you didn't play guitar before this time? No, I was 30 years old when I learned the guitar. Wow. And well, one day I got a phone call from the local Y, and they said, we'd like you to come and teach guitar at the Y. And I said, Excuse me? I said, I've been playing guitar for six months. I've never taught anything. Sorry, you have the wrong person. Goodbye. And I hung up. Of course you did. Two weeks later, phone rings again. This is the Hartman Y calling. We're really desperate. We want to start a teenage guitar group, and we desperately need a teacher. We'd like you to be the teacher. I said, I told you. I've been playing for six months. I've never taught anything, and I can't help you. Goodbye. Third time, <laughs> by this time I was getting really crazy. I said, tell me something. I said, how did you get my name? They said, Gus the Mailman. Gus the Mailman? Gus the Mailman. He had been coming by every day to bring me my mail while I was out there practicing. And he loved the way I sounded. And he thought I was a good player. He didn't realize I was brand new. <laughs> so I said to the person on the phone, look, if you want me to try, I'll try, but you're getting a totally green person. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> P.S. I taught there for over 10 years. Wow, guitar. Guitar. And because of that, 
one year they decided not to just do teenagers, they wanted to do adults. So we had an adult guitar class. And in that class was a woman who happened to be a school secretary at a local junior high school. And then she found out I had gotten my degree. So she called me up one day and she said, Sonny, the music teacher's going to be out tomorrow. Would you feel like subbing for him? And that's how I got into something. <laughs> I kept going back, and I was able to handle the kids. It was a pretty tough school, but I'm a pretty tough person, as you learned right away. Yeah, no kidding. I didn't take any yeah. nonsense. So started out subbing. Did you even know what you were doing? I had no clue. I didn't know there was any such thing as a curriculum. I made my own up. Oh. <laughs> of course you did. The thing I stressed the most was vocabulary, huh. because I felt if you have a good vocabulary, you can excel on a lot of things. Well, I can bet that the kids adored you. I was as crazy as they were. We were a great yeah. combination. <laughs> did you keep in touch with some of the students? I bet you did. Some of them still visit me today up here in the woods. Wow. And it's absolutely amazing. I'm on Facebook with a few of wow. them. Wow. How long did you teach in Far Rockaway? I taught there 15 years. Growing up or anything like that, you never imagined being a, a school teacher, and then that just happened by accident. That just happened by accident. Everything that's happened in my life has been an accident. Yeah. Or who you meet, basically, right? It's who you meet yeah. and your attitude. Anyhow, after I had become a teacher, Phil committed suicide in my house. He killed himself in my house, my brother. And then a few years later, I believe it was 1982 or thereabouts, a guy named Michael Karolenko the brother of Alan Korolenko, who does the New Bedford Folk Festival. Yes. Michael Korolenko decided he wanted to do a documentary on Phil. Yep. I believe it was a docudrama. So he put it together, and then after it was completed, he held a party to celebrate the success. I was invited to the party. I went to the party, and quite by accident, I met a guy named Jim Price, who was a radio DJ at WFMU in East Orange, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And Jim said to me, I'd like to do an interview with you if you don't mind. I'd like to come out to your house and talk about Phil. I said, fine. Jim came to my house. We did the interview. He said, if you'd like, you could bring your favorite records to the radio station and we'll play them on the air. Huh. Wow. I was so excited. <laughs> I can't tell you. So I went through my collection. Those days it was LPs. It was before CDs. Yep. And I got like a milk carton and I filled it up with LPs, <laughs> took it to the station. We had a ball. He said, you can come back anytime you want. The next month I was back. The following month I was back again. And finally he said, Sonny, why don't you just take the first Monday of every month? That'll be your show. Wow. That's how my musical career began. You weren't really hanging out in the folky scene while Phil was playing? No. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I don't stay out late. I hate going to the city. I didn't have anything to do with the scene. Once in a while, I'd go in to see Phil at the Gaslight. I went in to see him when he did his Carnegie Hall concert. By and large, I was still just staying home. That's cool. So here I am. Now I have a radio show. Yeah, by accident. By accident. Once you have a radio show, well, the first thing that happened, I got a call from People's Music Network, which is a group of political songwriters who meet twice annually, that they're still going. Now, this is back in 1983. Okay. And they said they were going to be in New York City that winter, and would I like to come and be a guest panelist? And I said, sure, I'd love to. Huh. See, that's one thing I've learned in life, and this is my philosophy. If somebody asks you to do something, 
if it's not illegal and it's not going to hurt anybody, <laughs> say yes. Yeah, that's good philosophy. The worst that'll happen is you'll be bored, you know, but so no big deal. Right. So I said yes that I would be on a panel about political music on the air. And, of course, I knew absolutely nothing about this, but I figured, well, the other panelists will carry it, and I'll just kind of sit there. <laughs> so I went in, and there were only going to be two other panelists, one of whom dropped out, so there was only one other panelist, Oops. some guy from WBAI. I think he was the music director. I'm not sure. So he said to me, you're going to run the panel. I said, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> I said, I've only done six shows. <laughs> I don't know anything. Please don't do this to me. I love you get thrown into the waters. I love it. So that's great. There I was. He would not back down. So the panel started, room full of people. And I said, welcome to the panel on political music on the airwaves. There isn't any. (laughs) That was my introduction. Interesting, really. Fortunately for me, there was a woman in the audience. Her name was Marion Wade, who loved to talk and she basically dominated the whole panel for which I was so grateful. <laughs> she carried us through the hour and 15 minutes that we had to fill. That's amazing. But that was my start wow. with People's Music Network. Yeah, you just basically talked about Phil and that history. and No, she basically talked about everything. Huh. She was one of the founders, actually, of People's Music Network. Yeah. So she knew a lot more than I did, and I let her carry the ball. Then the other phone call I got, <laughs> to which I said yes, was from the Hudson River Sloop Singers. Oh, wow. They had heard that Jim Glover, who was Phil's roommate in college, had come to New York and was staying with me for a while, and they wanted him to be a part of the Sloop Singers. And they realized in order to get them, they had to take me because I would be his chauffeur. So that's how I got into the Hudson River Sloop Singers, which is affiliated totally with the Clearwater organization. And that's when I met my people. Right. I loved those folks. They were so, so with it, so politically active and musically active. So I did join the Hudson River Sloop Singers, and I love them. They're some of the nicest people on the face of the planet. Yeah. I guess that's when you met Pete Seeger and Toshi yes, at that time. Yes. And you became friendly with them. Well, with all the sloop singers, all the wonderful people there. Pete also was very active with People's Music Network. He went to every single meeting. Wow. I didn't know that. And that's kind of how you started your volunteer career, which if you look at your website, sunnyoaks.com, you've got every festival you've ever worked with back to 1983-ish all the way up to the present day. I mean, we're talking like the Boston Folk Festival, Mariposa, Lunenburg, Falcon Ridge, Clearwater Revival, Philadelphia Folk Festival, Old Songs, and the list goes on. And the best thing is arriving at a festival or Folk Alliance event and seeing Sonny's smiling face greeting you. Well, I volunteered all the time. That's the other thing that people should be aware of. The best way to attend anything is as a volunteer. It's a whole different world than buying a ticket and sitting and watching the show. It is so much fun. Mm-hmm. It's true. And it gives you such a different insight. I love volunteering. I also volunteered at the major folk conferences like NERFA. I've been to every single NERFA yep. Yep. since it started. had 25 years of it. Wow. Yep. And I've met so many good people. And Folk Alliance, the big granddaddy of it all. Oh, I've volunteered there, too. Crazy side stories. I love to do registration. That way you meet everybody who's coming in. And at registration one time, a guy came up to me, and his name was Martin Joseph. Uh And he said to me, oh, are you any relation to Phil? I said, yeah, he was my brother. 
And Martin said, you know, I would love to record some of his songs. Long story short, he's now put out an album of 14 of Phil's songs. He's got one of the most beautiful voices. One of the most beautiful voices on the circuit right now is, is that man. And it's it's fabulous. And it's because we met at registration at Folk Alliance. That there you go. He decided to go ahead with this fleeting idea that he had had. Well, there have been many, many, many artists who've put together songs of Phil's and sung them over the years. And you have been running what is known as Phil Oak Song Nights for how many years now? Probably 30 or or more. Started in 1983. That was my golden year. (laughs) What gave you that idea to have people sing Phil's songs? How'd you go about that? Well, it started out, it was not my idea. There was a folk collective at the Speakeasy, which was a, a folk club in Greenwich Village on McDougal Street. People like Rod McDonald, Christine Lavin, Dave Van Ronk, I believe Suzanne Vega. These were the people who hung out there and they put on shows and got a call from somebody saying, Sonny, we'd like to do a night of Phil's songs. How do you feel about that? And would you come down and join us? I said, I would love that. So I actually made a trip into Manhattan, which was very rare for me. And there were lots of people there, and they were all getting up and singing one of Phil's songs. It was somewhat chaotic, but it worked. And then the next year, second year, I get a call. We want to do it again. And this time I did some input. I asked, well, Joe Hukerot from the Sloop Singers, could I invite Lydia Adams Davis? And I named some names, and they said yes to everyone I named. So they all came down, and there were so many people that I left at 11 p.m., and the thing was still going strong. Wow. By the third year, this is when it really became mine, the third year I had been hired to run the open mic at Folk City every other Monday night. Okay. So I was now a permanent fixture (laughs) at Folk City. So I got to put the show together, and I made it so organized. The sunny kicked in, you know, the sunny mode. (laughs) (laughs) Look out. (laughs) It was totally organized, and we were there in 85 and 86. So then I moved upstate and found out about a club called The Eighth Step. So we moved the Phil Oak song night to the eighth step. In Albany, that is. And then a friend of mine in Boston said, well, could we do one here? And I said, sure. And then Diane Tankle in Philly said, could we do one here? And I said, sure. So it started to spread out. Over the years, it spread out so much that we've gone through the Midwest several times. We've gone to Canada. We've done the Far West. One tour, we started up in Vancouver and worked our way down to Santa Cruz. And it's just been growing and growing in all sorts of folks have been in these song nights, some well-known, some not so well-known, but people that I realized were talented as could be. And then some of the festivals started doing Phil Oaks workshops. So it just kept spreading and spreading. It's a beautiful thing. It really is. And if you've never gone to one of these, I hope you get a chance to do that when we open back up because it's very special. There's a core group of people who've been touring with you for quite a while. Greg Greenway, Reggie Harris, Joe Jenks, Magpie, John Flynn, one of my favorites. So, yeah. Emma's Revolution started out with Pat Humphreys and yep. switched to Emma's Revolution. Yep. I've even snuck on a stage a couple of times when you weren't looking <laughs> and got to sit in. And that was a really special thing for me. I know how you feel about drummers. I don't like drum drummers, <laughs> drum kit drummers. I like percussionists. You are a percussionist. I don't consider you a drummer. Thank you. I think. Yes. No, it's softer. It allows the person up front to be up front. I know what you mean. And that's the way it should be. Exactly. Definitely look into some of those nights and some of the artists who've put songs out. I know Reggie's recorded. Kim and Reggie have recorded Phil's music. 
Magpie has done a lot of them. Sonia put out a complete CD of Phil's songs. That's right. As has Pat Wichter. Yep. I was so blessed to be on the Pat Wichter album. And one of my favorite songs on that album is, I didn't know this Phil Oak song, Knock on the Door. Oh, it's so powerful. And it is so, so wonderful. And you weren't in the studio, thank goodness, because I decided to sneak into the drum room that had the drum, drum, drums and decided to play those. And all I kept thinking was, oh, Sonny's just going to hate this. She's not going to listen to it. She'll never play it on the radio, that's for sure. And I think I heard a little birdie say it's one of your favorites. It is. Yeah. It's absolutely terrific. In many a time, in many a land, with many a gun in many a hand They came by the night, they came by the day Came with their guns to take us away With a knock on the door, knock on the door Here they come to take one I'm excited about that one. So anyways, you guys should look out for some of these artists who've put together Phil Oak's songs and Phil Oak albums. If you get a chance to, definitely do that. Another thing I started doing when I moved up here in the 80s, the middle of nowhere, about an hour from Albany, place that was my summer camp, and now has been my home for 35 years. So when I moved up here in 86, there was no music really, no formal music. So up at the top of the hill where I live is a tiny little church called Gates Hill Church. It seats about 80 people, and acoustically it's beautiful. So I decided, what the heck, I'm going to do concerts here. Hmm. So I got hold of the people who ran the place. It wasn't functioning. There would be an occasional wedding, but there was no regular services or anything. So I made a deal with them. I'd give them a percentage of the gate, and we would hold concerts there, and I'd give the rest of the gate to the performers. So we started in 1987, and that concert series went for 23 years. You're kidding. I didn't realize you started it at that church. Yes, it was a summer series, and the location was just breathtaking. You could look around at the hills around, and the music was so much fun because I had no sound system, and you didn't need it. Yeah. And the people that played there, I mean, Betty and the Baby Boomers, Rod McDonald, (laughs) Magpie, Kim and Reggie, of course, how many great performers played at that church over the years. Yeah. And then I got talked out of doing it because somebody said, you have no insurance, and God forbid somebody falls and sues. Who are they going to sue? There is no church. It's just you. So they talked me out of it. But by that time, I was more known in the community. And I got together with a, this is so funny, a minister in Schoharie, who was the minister of the Presbyterian Church in Schoharie. And we together started up a concert series, which we called Helping Hands. Mm -hmm. And we used it to raise money for local nonprofits. We raised thousands and thousands of dollars. That ran for at least eight years or more. Hmm. One of our favorite performers who came back every year was the group Tanglefoot from Canada. Oh, I love Tanglefoot. Oh, they were just so special. Yeah. Because it was me, because they liked me, they would do it for a really low fee because we had to depend on what came in over the counter and donations. Yeah. And somebody was able to get a couple of grants for us, but that went on until... The minister had the nerve to move away. (laughs) (laughs) 
I know now you do concerts in the library in Scary. Local library. I've been getting grants on my own for the local library series, and I don't even know how many years I've done that. This past year, we started at one live concert, and that was John Flynn back last February. That was your last one? Well, we kept going online, but it wasn't the same. It really isn't the same. No, it's not the same. This really is folks in the middle of nowhere, and Sunny has the most awesome cabin up on the hill with her own waterfalls. And so musicians like to come up there on their way to and from somewhere. They tell you that the routing worked out. But the truth of the matter is we purposely route just so we can come (laughs) and visit you. It's the truth. Runa did a concert at the library. Yep. The group that you're in. A gig canceled or something. That's right. We had a blast. You basically put us in a different room. Actually, in the library itself, right? Yes, in the library. In the actual library. Right. And I told you, whatever came to the gate, that was what you were going to get. I made no promises. I know. And we had a very large gate. We were lucky. So it, yeah. it actually worked out. Yeah, that was a great night. And again, it's always special to come up and visit you. And so, believe it or not, one of the first things I'm going to do when I'm let loose is come and visit you guys up on the hill because I miss y'all. Oh, I hope so. Another library concert, which was the same year, I think that you did it, meant so much to me. And again, the people did it because they like me. It was <laughs> Jay Unger and Molly Mason. <gasps> oh. They only live about an hour away. Yeah, but that must have been so awesome. And so I taught them into coming in to do a concert. They also did the large room like you did. The place was packed. There was not an empty seat. They do not tour far from home. Like, I asked them if they would, and they don't like to travel as much anymore, and that's fine. Right. You are so in tune with the singer-songwriters that are out on the scene right now. For Falcon Ridge Festival, I was the only judge for the first three years, and then I took on some friends to join me. You've done it for Nerf as well. So the Falcon Ridge Folk Festival has an emerging artist showcase, meaning people who are new to the scene. Right. We called it something different back then. This was 1992 was the first year I did it. Okay. And among others, two of the people that I put into that first showcase were Greg Greenway and Katie Curtis. Oh, Katie Curtis. Oh, cool. You were judge at times for the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance, the NERFA conference. Oh, for ages. Yep. And it was the Cayman again and Diane Tankle and myself. Yep. You know, we were there for years and years and years. And finally I said, you know, it's time to bring in some younger judges, some new people. We've been at it way too long. So I dropped out because I just felt that it was important to do so. Finally, after a while, the others also joined me. And now I think they change judges quite frequently, which is good. You need a variety. Yeah. But when I think about the people that came up before me, sort of, I guess, the 90s that you've put in either at Falcon Ridge or at Nerfa. Well, I remember when Alice Paul applied to Falcon Ridge. Oh. You know, normally people like to be on later in the show. Yeah. But he has to be on first because he had another commitment. Huh. But he wanted to be on the stage, and then he basically ran away because he had to be somewhere else. Wow. Marty Sexton hmm. was another one. Yeah. It's interesting because... Marty wasn't quite my kind of music, but I I can listen with other people's ears, and I realized that he would be very popular, and sure enough, that worked very well. Yep, he sure was, or is still. And Ellis Paul has got quite a career going. He's been on this show on an episode of FolkPod, and we had a great conversation. He really is a wonderful, wonderful person and a great songwriter. Right. Oh, we didn't talk about Eric. So you've known Eric Anderson a very long time because he was friends with Phil I think, as he tells it, Eric came on the scene a little later, and Phil sort of... He adopted him. Pretty much, yeah. Took him up to Broadside Magazine, which is something else we haven't discussed. Oh, that's right. Broadside Magazine was, as far as I'm concerned, the most important magazine in the 60s. 
very, very amateurish in appearance. I think it started out maybe eight mimeograph pages, hmm. but it grew and it got fancier. And it was the place where all of the songwriters back in the day, and that includes Phil, Eric, Dylan, Janice Ian, before she was even Janice Ian. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> All of these people, all of their first songs were published in Broadside Magazine. And the way they did it, they'd go up to the apartment of the couple who ran it, Sis Cunningham and Gordon Friesen. They would sing their songs into a Wallensack tape recorder. Sis would transcribe them and put them in the magazine. So all of the first songs, like Blowing in the Wind and 69 of Phil's songs were in Broadside Magazine. Wow, 69. Yeah. Yeah, I never asked Eric how many, I should ask him how many of his songs are in there. Eric had a lot in there. They even put in all the words to Arlo Guthrie's Alice's Restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely amazing. That's amazing. What a collector's item that is now. Do you still have any at home? I have the complete set of Broadside magazines. There are over 100 issues. Wow. And if you want to look at them, the Smithsonian has them. Okay. So if you go on the web, check out the Smithsonian, you can find Broadside magazines. Okay. Yeah. Eric talks about in the new movie out about Eric, the song poet that you can see on PBS right now or online. He talks about Phil, of course, and he talks about the whole broadside experience. So it's just fascinating stuff to me. Well, I met Eric on January 7th, I believe it was 1966. How do I know the date? (laughs) Because that was Phil's first Carnegie Hall concert. Oh, concert, they had a uh, party at Jack Holzman's house. Jack Holzman was one of the big wigs at Electra Records. Okay. And so I went to the after concert party. Right. And I go through the door, 
And there sitting on the couch is Eric Anderson, who was, my God, what a gorgeous, gorgeous looking man. He was so stunning. (laughs) And there was an empty seat next to him. I made a beeline for the empty seat. Oh, also at the party were Judy Collins and Theodore Bikel. I'm name dropping, but you know. Oh, was there now? I wanted to sit next to Eric because he's so gorgeous. (laughs) And I start a conversation with him. And oh my God, it was like talking to a high school kid. He was so young. (laughs) He was like maybe four or five years younger than I was, but, but so young. And so new at this. Yeah, yeah. It was so hard to believe that he wrote these sensual songs that he wrote. Wow. You know, I just couldn't connect them together. It was unbelievable. But that's how I met Eric. Wow. You never told me that story. That's cool. That is cool. He just talks so so fondly of Phil. So actually, one of the coolest things was when I was spending some time up on the hill there, and I was touring with Eric. We stopped in for a few days and. I got to be the fly on the wall that people always say they want to be. I got to be the fly on the wall watching you and Eric chat and reminisce just a couple of years ago. I'm forever grateful for moments like that. I'll tell you. All right, Sunny Oaks, because I asked this question to all the artists and I want to ask you this too, because I cannot wait to hear your answer. I will try not to laugh because I laughed at Vance Gilbert's answer and he couldn't believe I was asking a question and then laughing at the answer. So tell the audience something funny, quirky, crazy that they would never have guessed about you. This is a real good one. (laughs) I had a mother from hell who was always trying to push me in directions I had no desire to go. Thank God I had my father's mother, my grandmother. She was my guiding light. You didn't call your grandmother Bubby, did you? No, no. (laughs) She was not a Bubby. She was not a Bubby. She was very practical, like me. Anyhow, Here I had this mother from hell, and the final straw was after years of trying to get me put ahead of grade in school because I started school in Texas in kindergarten, and down there they started six, and up here they started age five. So she always felt like I was a year behind. So she went to the principal in the elementary school that I went to, and they said no. Finally, I get to high school. The guidance counselor says Okay, she can do high school in three years, but she's going to have to double up on her courses. I had to work like a dog, never had any free periods or anything. And finally, I I make up the year to where my mother thinks I belong. And what is the grand finale to this? She decides that I am not polished enough. So she sends me off to a freaking year of finishing school in Switzerland. Finishing school in Switzerland? Well, can't you tell that I've been to finishing school? (laughs) (laughs) I promised I wouldn't laugh. Oh, that's not nice. Uh, That's worth laughing at. Absolutely, Sonny. Every letter I got from her was, you don't know what an opportunity you're getting. And every letter I wrote back was, I want to come home. I hate it here. (laughs) I ended up managing to get out in March. I was supposed to stay till June, I guess, but I hated it. You went to finishing school. So did you have to wear a uniform? No. Did you have to put a plate on your head and walk? No. Actually, the Um. truth of the matter was it was really a glorified high school. And there were only 10 American girls in there. And the other Americans were people whose father were either officers in the military. They were stationed overseas. Or else my best friend, Anne, her father was an engineer working in Turkey. So he sent her to the school because he didn't want her to go to schools there. Huh. Okay. Yeah. How old were you when this happened? 17. Wow. I must have done a number on you. 
I survived. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Sunny Oaks went to finishing school. I love, I could keep asking you questions forever, but I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on the show and answer some questions and chat and reminisce. And thank you so much, Sunny Oaks. I miss you terribly. I adore you. I thank you for your friendship and all the chats we've had and all the time we've had to spend together. And I can't wait till we can do it again. So thank you so much, Sunny Oaks. You're a good friend for me also. So it goes both ways. Thank you. You've been listening to Folk Pod and this week's guest was Sunny Oaks. All right, I'm just going to do my little spiel. Hi, I'm Cheryl Prashker, and this is Folk Pod, the show for everyone who loves folk music. Here, I talk to the people who draw this community together and bring it to life, including Shauna's new little puppy dog. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought I was on mute. Hang on. This is so funny. That's all right. I'll do it over again after. Folkpod is a production of Long Story Short with me, Cheryl Prashker, your host, producer, and lead schmoozer, and Shauna Boniface, creator, producer, and editor. Like and subscribe to Folkpod wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us five stars on iTunes. It really helps raise our profile for more listeners. Catch us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Folkpod. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time. And I won't know the right from the wrong when I'm gone. And you won't find me singing on this song when I'm gone. So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here.